morning. Our reading is from Acts 1, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all, the, all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings made by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Lord, teach us to pray is my prayer today. On the basis of what you did on the cross, on the basis of your broken body and your spilled blood, on the basis of the fact that you are the Lord, the Lord, a God that's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that you are immensely patient with us, and that you're willing to walk down this road of sanctification with us, just walking with us again in so much patience, Father, as we stumble along the way and try to become disciples of Jesus Christ. Oh God, on the basis of what you've done and on the basis of who you are, I pray that you would teach us to pray. Lord, I ask you to come now and help me as I preach. Father, I've done a lot of thinking about this for years now, not just this week. And I pray that all of that thinking, all of that living with you, Father, all the many, many, to me, countless hours of secret prayer that we have spent together, Father, I pray that some of that would now come out as fruit in the life of this church. And I, I pray that you would make us a praying people. I pray that the spirit of prayer would descend upon us, that we would be a people who know what it means in reality to walk with our Father and talk with you about every single thing in our lives. God, I pray for the day when the words from Paul just seem so real to us. Pray without ceasing. Just pray all the time. Pray when you wake up. Pray when you're doing anything you're doing during the day. Pray while you're taking your rest. Even pray in your sleep. Pray, pray, pray as people breathe. So, my beloved, pray. Oh God, please make these things real to us. Father, I've prepared a word for today, but I trust in the work of your Spirit alone. And so I lift up this body before you, including myself and my own family. Father, I lift us up before you as an offering, and I ask you to do your work for the glory of your name and the joy of our souls. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned last week in my sermon, we are going to pause the series in the Pentateuch for a few weeks, three weeks, in order to talk about prayer in the life of this church as we approach the Easter and Lent season. This year, as a church, we're going to take advantage of the season of Lent. Easter, as you well know, is the day on which we celebrate the, the, the day when Jesus Christ was raised again from the dead. And we do believe that that happened in history. We believe that He broke His body and spilled His blood and was put in a grave. And we believe that literally one day Jesus Christ was brought forth out of that grave from death and that He lives now interceding for us at the right hand of God. We really believe that. And on Easter Sunday, we'll celebrate that. The 40 days before Easter are, are traditionally called Lent, is just a German word that means spring. And churches around the world have set those days aside for a season of fasting and prayer that they might both enter into the suffering of Christ to some extent, but I think more so that they might prepare their souls to receive the glory of what God has done in Christ through the resurrection. So the season of Lent is, is a season of preparation. It's a season of consecration. It's a, a season of setting ourselves aside for God that we might have the eyes to see God. It's a season in which we seek to die to the world just a little bit more that we might live to God. It's a season in which we seek to take our eyes off the lesser things of this world that so often grab our hearts and our attention. I don't know about you, but I am so easily distractible. The things in this world just get my attention so easily. And so Lent has historically been a time when Christians try to sort of concentrate on the glory of Jesus and help them fix their eyes on Him who is eminently more valuable than all the things that grab our attention. And the point of this season of consecration then is not just to observe a, 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 a historic ritual. That's not the point. The point is to consecrate ourselves to God, to enter into deeper communion with God, that we might live all of our lives with Him. It's like a, a special set-apart season that's designed to impact the way that we live our lives. We, the elders, are leading this church to engage in the season of Lent as in, in, in fasting and prayer somewhat because we want to join in with the body of Christ around the world, but more so because it connects to the trajectory of where God is leading this church in these days. And so what I want to do this morning is just take a few minutes and explain to you what I mean by that. And then I want to go to the book of Acts and just sort of get a bird's eye view of the first few chapters. And I want us to see a pattern of the way that, that God has willed for the church to live its life out in worship and in community and in mission. And then I'll come back and uh, apply that to our life here together. The elders recently articulated the mission of the church in the following words. So still up for your feedback and it's up for revision, but here's what we have right now. Glory of Christ Fellowship exists to make disciples of all nations by living lives of worship, walking together in community and engaging in the mission of Christ that we may grow to full maturity for the glory of Christ. So to put it briefly, this church is about worship, it's about community, and it's about mission. Those are three words that we just want to press and press and press upon the church until we remember them well and live them, more importantly. Worship, community, and mission. That's what this church is about. When it comes to worship, we do have a lot of growing to do, but we are in fact the church that is committed to exalting the glory of God by the teaching of the Word of God and by singing the praises of God. We 
are a church that finds great joy in lifting our eyes up and seeing the beauty of who God is and delighting in who He is and growing in the knowledge of who He is and submitting our lives to Him because of who He is. It is genuinely, among the elders and leadership of this church, it is no duty for us to have to worship God. This is truly, I'm telling you, in the secret places of our lives, the secret places of our hearts, it is the deepest joy of our lives to behold the beauty of God and live in light of the glory of God. This church does have a long way to go, but it's no exaggeration to say that the worship of God is a vital characteristic of who we are as a people. In fact, it's probably the vital characteristic of this church. When it comes to community, we spent five months last year learning about what it means to walk in love together, and we have a long way to go here as well, but we're moving in the right direction. Among other things, we have appointed one of our elders to be the pastor for community life, and he's giving all the time that he can to developing our four community groups in the hope that we would grow in love for each other and grow together in unity and grow up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We have a lot of work to do, a lot of growing to do to learn what it means to walk in love, but my point is that aspect of life in the church is is here. It's a true value for us. It's not a put-on. It's not just words. It's real. A lot of growth, but but it's there. And we're moving in the right direction. And I give praise to God for that. And I give praise to God for so many of you who are laboring along with us to learn what it means to walk together in love. When it comes to mission, worship, community, now mission, the, the news I think is a little bit more mixed. By mission, I mean three things specifically. I mean evangelism in the local area. I mean ministry to the, the poor and the weak. Mercy ministries, we might call them. And I mean global outreach. So when you, when I think mission, I think evangelism, mercy ministries, and global outreach. As for global outreach, we're doing a pretty good job for a church of our size and age. But when it comes to local evangelism and local mercy ministries, we're doing very little right now and that needs to change. We are doing some things, and we are reaching out in some respects, but not enough, and that needs to change. Now, as, as elders, we're not blaming anybody for that, not even ourselves. So, to build a church that will last, beloved, you need to understand, in my mind, I'm thinking of Glory of Christ Fellowship for a hundred years, and I mean that. I'm not laboring day in and day out to, to build a foundation for a church that will last only for a short time. I've already got in my mind, in fact, I've written a letter to the next pastor and the next pastor already in my mind telling him what was in my heart to put down as a foundation for this church because unless Jesus returns, I want to see a vital worshiping community here for a long, long time to come. When you build a church with that kind of thought in mind, it takes time. It just takes time. The bigger the building you build, the bigger the foundation has to be, right? The more, the more solid that foundation has to be. And so we haven't been being lazy about mission. We've just been working on foundational things that we feel will one day propel us into mission in a way that will really take our breath away. But now the time has come for us to at least begin building the framework of mission in the life of this church. We're not impatient about this. We know it will take time. We're not here to pressure you to now do a bunch of more things. That's not the point. The point is it's time now for us to give serious thought and to begin building the fabric of mission in the life of the church. Now, here's the thing. The first major step in developing a commitment to mission in the life of a church is first developing a commitment to prayer in the life of a church as a body. Because Power for mission does not come as a church makes plans. 
Power from mission comes as power comes from God through the Holy Spirit and propels us into the world. That's how effective fruit is born. Plans are good. Power is necessary. The Holy Spirit has plans, but before plans comes power. And the only way that the power of the Spirit comes is by prayer and by prayer alone. There is literally no other way. Literally no other way. It's possible to grow churches in other ways, right? It's possible to entertain people. It's possible to give away cars and Vikings tickets and all kinds of things to get people to come to the church, preach fancy sermons on sexuality and whatever attracts folks and entertains them and, and, and makes them stick around for a season. That's possible. But to bear the genuine fruit of the Holy Spirit is only possible as we, as a people, gather before the throne in prayer and wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit's power comes, we're propelled out into the world and we bear the fruit that He meant for us to bear. Beloved, there is literally not another way to enter into the mission of Christ in the world. Not another way. And that's what I want us to talk about today and next week as well. The anonymous author of the little book, The Kneeling Christian, that I've been writing so many devotionals about in recent days. It's just a little book, but I'm telling you, it's really, really touched my life. You can get it online for free. It's called The Kneeling Christian. Here's what the author writes. Communion with God is essential before we can have real communion with our fellow man. My conviction is that we so seldom speak to others about their spiritual condition because we pray so little for them. In other words, he's saying if you would pray for the lost more, you would share Christ more. It's not about being bold or, or doing a duty. It's about being in connection with our Father through prayer. And the more we pray, the more we will be bold outwardly. Men of power are without exception men of prayer. That's true. God bestows His Holy Spirit only on men of prayer. And it is through the operation of the Spirit that answers to prayer come, including answers to evangelistic kinds of prayers. This author is right about what he's saying. And the reason he's right is because he has discerned a pattern of life in the life of the church that goes all the way back to the very moment the church was born, namely on the day of Pentecost. This isn't something he made up or that I'm making up now or that anyone's made up through the centuries. This is something that God himself has made up. And so with that, I want to look now to the book of Acts. And I, again, I just want to get a bird's eye view over the first few chapters to see a pattern and see if we can gain wisdom for how the Holy Spirit operates in the life of a church as he propels that church into the world to reach the lost and to help the weak and, and, and those kinds of things. So let's look at chapter 1 to begin with. The book of Acts begins where the gospel of Luke ends. Namely, the scene is in Jerusalem. Jesus has just recently resurrected from the dead. It's an amazing miracle. The disciples are overjoyed because even though the Lord had told them what was going to happen, they really didn't get it. But now they see Jesus with their own eyes. I mean, they knew He was dead. And then they're seeing Him with their, their own eyes. He appeared to them among a 40-day period by many signs and wonders. And He taught them about the kingdom of God. And in the midst of all of that, He specifically ordered them. That, that word really jumped out at me when I read the text this week. Jesus ordered them to stay in Jerusalem and quote, 
to wait for the promise of the Father, namely the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which He had taught them about. He said, John, baptize you with water. I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now He is commanding them, I want you to wait in Jerusalem. I want you to stay here and wait until the promise of the Father comes. On hearing this, the disciples began to press Him about the details of the kingdom. They were curious about these things just like we are. This is why so many books are written in our day about all of these matters because we're curious. When is the end going to come? What will the signs be? When we when will we know that your kingdom is coming in consummation? It's all these kinds of things. And, and Jesus, rather than answering them, just, just sort of stopped their questioning and said this in verses 7 and 8. He said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. And that's still true today, by the way. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the world. In other words, you don't need to know about all the details of the future of the kingdom. Here's what you need to know. When you obey me and go and pray, you're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit. And when you receive power from the Holy Spirit, after that, you will be my witnesses. Beloved, it is so crucial that we slow down here for a second and understand the order of what Jesus is saying here. Because if we get this order right, we will have power for mission. If we get this order wrong, we might be able to grow the church, but we will never be able to to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The order is simple, but it's this. You will receive power from the Holy Spirit, and then you will be my witnesses in the world. The power comes down before the people go out. Period and end of story. That's the way it was then. That's the way it's always been. That's the way it is now. So the question very quickly becomes, if we have to have the power before we go out, where do we get the power? And the answer that Jesus gives is very simple. You get the power by waiting together on the Lord in prayer. Every piece of what I just said is very important. There's three parts. We get the power of the Holy Spirit by waiting on the Lord. That's the first part. Together, that's the second part. In prayer, that's the third part. Wait together, wait on the Lord together in prayer. That's how the Holy Spirit comes upon the life of a church and flings them into the world to bear the fruit that He has called us to bear. Again, church growth is not what I have in mind here. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is what I have in mind. Perhaps that means the church will grow. I don't know. But what's more important to me is that we bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And what I know is, from this text, the only way to do that is to wait on the Lord in prayer until the power comes. When the power comes, we're flung out into the world. In obedience to Jesus, the disciples made the short journey from the Mount of Olives to the upper room where they were staying. There was about 120 of them in those days. And they entered into a season of prayer. Asa Veek and I talked about this the other day, and I agree with him. I don't think probably they prayed just in one big group for the whole time that they were in that upper room. They probably It probably shifted throughout the days that they were up there. They probably prayed in small groups, prayed all together at times. They probably sang hymns and worshiped. They probably went for walks outside to take a little break. They probably rested and slept from time to time. The, the, the Passover on the day which Jesus died happened 50 days before the day of Pentecost. And Luke told us that Jesus had walked among the disciples for 40 days after the resurrection. So that means that the disciples were probably in the supper room for about 10 days. 
They had a, about a seven or ten day prayer meeting. That's something I can get my mind around. I've been to several three or four day pastors prayer meetings where we literally just fasted and prayed for three, four days straight. And the only time we stopped was, was, was to sleep. And that was it. So I can get my mind around that and see kind of how that works. And that's, that's a long time to pray, but I just want us to, to understand they didn't pray for 50 days. They, they prayed for about 10 days, probably. While they were praying, Peter decided at one point to stand up and lead the church to replace Judas. You know, Judas had betrayed Jesus, betrayed the disciples, and so now instead of having 12 apostles, you had 11, and Peter, that didn't seem right to him, so now he wanted to replace that 12th apostle, and they cast lots, and they did their things, and they selected Matthias to replace Judas. And I bring this up only to say, well, first of all, it's in the text, but second of all, I think the reason it's in the text is to show what the life in the church is like when they do things that make sense on paper but that aren't being led by the Holy Spirit. I think the disciples in that moment got ahead of the Lord. The Lord never told them to replace Judas. He told them to go pray and wait. On paper, their plan probably looked good and right, but it wasn't being led by the Spirit, I don't think. And so there was no fruit. You notice in the rest of the Bible, you never hear about Matthias again for the rest of the Bible. Why is that? Because I think the disciples took an action that might have made sense, but it wasn't being led by the Lord. I think Paul was God's replacement for Judas in the twelve apostles. Paul is called an apostle to this day. And when God appointed his apostle, look at all the fruit that was born. A lot of fruit has been born through the life of Paul to this very day. We spent two and a half years as a church bearing fruit through one of the, just one of the letters that he wrote. Why? Because God did that. When God does something, wow, out comes the fruit. Like in a big, big, big way. So many churches are stuck in this time before the power comes and they're doing things that make sense on paper, but they're not being led by the Spirit and so the fruitfulness is not there. But I praise God for His mercy and for His grace because even though the disciples, I think, got ahead of the Lord and were a little bit presumptuous, the Lord never even commented to them about what He thought about that. He just simply blessed them on the day of Pentecost. And while they were all together praying, and please notice that in chapter 2, verse 1, that piece is really important. They were all together. The, the communion of the saints is so important for the power of the Holy Spirit to come. It was when they were together, gathered together and praying, that the Father fulfilled His promise and literally drenched His people with the Holy Spirit. And upon them landed what looked like, like flames of fire. And the result was they were able to speak boldly about the mighty works of God. But the thing was, they spoke boldly in languages they had never spoken before. Now in one sense, that might seem really strange that God would have them do that. But in fact, it's not strange because in Jerusalem that day to celebrate the great feast of Pentecost were Jews from all over the world that spoke a number of languages. Very few people would have been able to communicate with each other, kind of like the only illustration that comes to my mind for today is actually not a Christian one, but when you think of Mecca and how many Muslims go to that place and, and really very few of them actually speak a common language, it would have been like that here in this day. Jews from all over the world there, but really can't speak to each other. God gives the, the disciples a gift to be able to proclaim the mighty works of God in Jesus Christ in a way that everyone there could understand. This is like a, a reversal of the Tower of Babel. At the Tower of Babel, the nations had a plan, and God confused their language and dispersed them for, to, for His own plan, to accomplish His own plan. Now the nations are gathered back in Jerusalem again, and God unconfuses their language, if you will, 
so that they can all understand very clearly what God is doing in Jesus Christ. Don't get distracted by speaking in tongues. The miracle of Pentecost was a miracle of hearing the gospel in everyone's common language. They might have heard it in different words, but everybody heard the same message, and that was the power of the day of Pentecost. Some people scoffed at the disciples and said, the reason they're babbling like this is because they're drunk. It's early in the morning, but already they're drunk. And so the Holy Spirit came upon Peter, and he stood up and he said, no, no, no. We are not drunk. This is a fulfillment of the Holy Spirit from the Father that was prophesied to you in your books a long, long time ago. And he preached a sermon from Joel and from some other sources about Jesus Christ that was so powerful that it says everyone there in the hearing of his voice was literally cut to the heart. And in verse 37, the people asked Peter, what shall we do? In light of everything that you're saying, what shall we do? And he told them three things. Number one, repent. Turn away from your way of life and repent. Number two, be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. And number three, he promised them, if you will do this, you too will receive the power of the Holy Spirit just as we have. In other words, what he was saying was that the Holy Spirit is not only for a special class of apostles or the first generation of disciples, but it's for all who believe. And so the result of this was that about 3,000 souls were cut to the heart and in fact repented and were baptized in the name of Jesus and received the Holy Spirit and prayer. Uh, and, and, and the church was born as a result. We went from 120 disciples to about 3,120 in one single day by the power of the Spirit. That's what happens when the people of the Lord wait upon the Lord until He's ready to accomplish His mission in the world. It is not hard to draw up our plans and go into the world and do the things we want to do. That's easy to do. But the best thing is to wait on the Lord and let Him accomplish His plans. Notice with me in verses 42 to 47 the result of what happened here. Christian community was born. The people walked together in love. They did life together. Acts 2.42-47 is the model on which this church has been envisioned and, and is being built. Out of a great outpouring of the Spirit, community is born. And I just want us to see this pattern. The disciples cried out together to God in prayer. In other words, they were living a Godward life, a, a worshipful life. And through that communion was outpoured the power for mission. And when mission happened, community was born. Worship, community, and mission, beloved, are, are aspects of life of the church that go very, very deep into the heart of God and into our history as a people. After the day of Pentecost was over, the power of the Holy Spirit continued to pour through the life of the church. In the coming chapters, we read a story of a, a lame beggar who was healed by Peter and John. And this both opened up an opportunity for them to preach the gospel, and it caused them to come into persecution with the powers that be. About 2,000 more people came to Christ, so you just have to get this in your mind. Very quickly, we went from 120 disciples to over 3,000 to now over 5,000 people. The church is just exploding by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not about the numbers, it's about the movement of the Holy Spirit. That's the story of Acts. In fact, you really could call Acts the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And the point here is, again, not to get caught up in the numbers, but to see what happens when His people wait upon Him. After all those people came to Christ, the powers that be persecuted John and Peter. They flogged them, they rebuked them, they commanded them to stop preaching. 
But at some point they released them, and John and Peter go back to the other disciples. They told them all that had happened before the council. And what was the church's instant reaction upon hearing what had happened to Peter and John? Their instant reaction was that they went back to prayer. Please look with me. Chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. I want to read the whole thing. When they, John and Peter, were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they, the church, had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and His anointed. For truly, in this city, in Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord... Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Beloved, we really need to notice something here. Namely, that the pattern of the day of Pentecost was not meant only for the day of Pentecost, but it was a pattern that was to be repeated again and again throughout the life of the church. After that day on Pentecost, when such power had been poured out upon them, the believers did not rest on their laurels, if you will. They did not assume that all they needed for the entire history of the life of their church was given to them in one day. Rather, they saw in what happened that day a pattern that should characterize their whole life. And the pattern looks like this. Communal prayer leads to Holy Spirit power. Holy Spirit power leads to boldness in mission. Boldness in mission leads to abundant fruit. Abundant fruit leads to the worship of God. That is the pattern of mission for the church, and there is no other pattern, period, and end of story. I really think the reason Luke made sure to repeat this almost the exact same occurrence, prayer, power from the Holy Spirit, mission, and fruits, and then the formation of community, and then in chapter 4 he repeats the whole thing again. The thing he's trying to do is teach us, beloved, this is a pattern. It's not a a once-in-a-lifetime thing. This is not just for that church then. This is for our church now. If we as a people want to be on mission with Jesus, we have to do it this way. There is no other way. Period and end of story. After this time, the church faced a number of challenges and serious challenges. Someday we'll preach through the back of Acts and we'll see just how deep and serious those challenges were. But if you'll look at chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, you'll see that many signs and wonders continued to be done to the end that more believers than ever were added to the Lord, multitudes, the Bible says, of both men and women. The gospel kept going forward because the people waited in prayer. Not once, but over and again as a pattern of life. In chapter 6, verse 7, we see that after another crisis in the church, the Word of God continued to increase so that the number of disciples multiplied greatly. And now it says... 
that even a great number of priests came to the faith. And that really touches me when I read that. Because you remember the first apostles were all uneducated people. They had not been to college and seminary, if you will. They didn't have professional clergy degrees. And so when they were preaching the gospel to the high and mighty people who had all the education, those people looked down on them and said, who are you to be preaching to us? You're just uneducated men. You don't know anything. But now, through the weakness of those uneducated people who knew everything about the Spirit of God, through their weakness, God extended His power to the elite so some of the priests got saved and now humbled themselves. Now you had a church in which the elite and the uneducated were one people for the glory of Christ. The Word keeps going forward. After this, our dear brother Stephen stood up to testify to the reality of Jesus Christ and he paid with that for that with his life. But the end result of Stephen's testimony was that a persecution uh, broke out among the church and it scattered the church to the known world. And what did they do? They went out into the world preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. They didn't go out hiding from persecution. They went out preaching. The persecution in the day of Stephen was God's means for flinging the gospel into the world. The gospel kept going forward because the church waited on the Lord in prayer. In chapter 10, we see a story of Peter up on a roof one day praying. And while he's praying, he gets a vision. And the bottom line of it is that he's sent to a Gentile people and to a man named Cornelius, and he preaches the gospel to them. And they all get saved. And not only that, but the Holy Spirit descends upon them. For the first time, the gospel of Jesus Christ moved from a Jewish context to a non-Jewish context But for our purposes, what I want us to see is that the vision that Peter had for going on mission to the Gentiles was born in prayer. It wasn't a plan that he came up with. It wasn't a strategic thing like, oh, that would be a good thing to do now. He was praying and praying and praying. He was in the Spirit and the Lord said, Peter, it's time to go now. And so he went. We pray until the Lord speaks, until His power comes, and then we go. When we get the order right, the fruit comes. And so many Gentiles came to faith that day. Chapter 13, while the church was gathered in fasting and prayer, the Holy Spirit Himself said, I want you to set aside for me Paul and Barnabas, and I want you to send them to the nations. And the church did just that. And Paul and Barnabas as a missions team bore so much fruit throughout both of their ministries. But again, the point I want us to see is that their appointment was born in prayer. This wasn't a plan of the leaders of the church. They were fasting and praying and the Holy Spirit spoke. And when He spoke, they obeyed and that's when the fruit come. Communal prayer led to Holy Spirit power. Holy Spirit power led to bold mission. Bold mission led to much fruit. Much fruit led to the worship of God. Chapter 15, we see the church gathered in Jerusalem trying to solve a problem that had come up because of this movement of the gospel into the world of the Gentiles. The the bottom line was people were asking, do Gentiles need to live like Jews in order to be Christians? And for them, this was a humongous issue. It was a really big deal. So they gathered there in prayer together and in, in, in conversation together. And eventually they came up with a solution. And they wrote a letter to all of the churches which they started with these words. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Now, I'm one of the pastors in just a a little church. Our level of authority is nowhere even near to what the apostles had that day. But just as a leader in a little church, I think to myself, and I can't imagine writing a letter to all of you and saying something like, that's so bold. 
it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. They're speaking for the Holy Spirit. How could they do that? My answer to that question is because they were prayerful people and they knew His mind through prayer. Yes, they did meet to converse with one another about an issue facing the church, but mainly they went to seek the mind of God with one another. And when the time was right, the Holy Spirit spoke. And you know what the result was? That letter was brought to the Gentile churches throughout the world, and it caused the Gentiles to rejoice greatly, and the gospel flung all the faster into all the world. The point of Acts 15 is that the Holy Spirit not only gave power, but now He gave wisdom, and that wisdom flung the gospel even farther and farther and farther into the world. The church had the pattern right, beloved, time and time and time and time and time again. Believe me, this is no accident in Luke's writing. He's trying to help us get the point. If you want to be on mission with Jesus, you must be a person of prayer. There is no other way. If as a church we want to be a people of mission so that we can genuinely say worship, community, and mission all very much characterize us, then we must be a people of prayer. There there is no other way. Besides writing Acts, you all know that Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. And he is the one, uh, more than any of the other gospel writers, that emphasize the prayer life of Jesus. It is Luke who tells us in chapter 5, 16 of his gospel that Jesus would often draw away into desolate places to pray. Often. This wasn't like a one or two time thing for Jesus. This was his pattern of life. We have to remember, he was God, right? Jesus Christ, the whole time he walked the earth, was God. But as a man, he needed power from the Lord, and so he showed us this pattern. He demonstrated this pattern. Don't think to yourself that the power Jesus had in ministry came just because he's God. Of course, that's part of it, but it's not the whole answer. The reason Jesus had so much wisdom and power in ministry is because he prayed all the time. He was a man of prayer, and His wisdom and power came through prayer. What else could it mean when Jesus says, I only say what I hear the Father saying. I only do what I see the Father doing. He prayed, the Father spoke, and then Jesus went out in that order. Upward, inward, outward. In that order. Extremely important. It is Luke who tells us in chapter 2, verse 12, chapter 6, I'm sorry, verses 12 through 16, That just before Jesus appointed the apostles, you know what he did? He prayed all night long in prayer. He did not afford himself a single wink of prayer that, uh, of sleep that night. But rather he prayed all night long. And when I think about that, I learn the lesson. Jesus made no major decision in the life of his ministry without praying, 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 and praying until he was done praying. When he knew he had received the wisdom of the Father, then he stopped praying and he went into action. But not a moment before. He was not concerned with strategic plans as much as he was concerned with connecting with his Father in prayer. And beloved, again, Luke carries this theme into the book of Acts. And what he's trying to show us is that this is a life pattern for the life of the church. This is not a one-time or a two-time or a ten-time occurrence. This is the way we do things. If we're to be on mission with Christ, we must live this pattern well. Prayer leads to power, leads to mission, leads to fruit, leads to worship. That is the singular pattern by which a church enters into the genuine mission of God. And in my view, there is literally no other pattern. Every obedient church since the day of Acts 
has not borne the kind of fruit in numbers that the church in those days did. Not every obedient church has seen 500 or 1,000 or 10,000 people come to Christ so quickly. That, that's not the case and that's actually not the point. But every single obedient church from that moment to this moment who has borne the genuine fruit of the Holy Spirit has done it by praying together and waiting upon the Lord until He speaks. And then when the Lord speaks, they act. They got the order right, and that's why all the fruit came. The, the details of the fruit are actually not important. Getting the pattern right, that's what's important. We pray first, we wait for the power, then we go out in mission, we bear fruit, and we worship God together. I do believe, as I've said several times now, this is literally God's only plan for spreading the kingdom throughout the world. Now, why has God designed things this way? Why must we pray together? Why must we wait upon the Lord together? Why must we receive the power from the Holy Spirit before we can go? And for me, the simple answer to all these questions boils down to one word, and that's relationship, or perhaps a deeper word, communion. Ever since the day when human beings fell into sin, God has been trying to rebuild the communion that we had with Him redemptively because He is a merciful and gracious God. And Jesus said, you remember when we studied John 17, Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. In the same way the Father sent me, Jesus Christ, into the world, so I am sending you, my disciples, into the world. Now what does that mean? Jesus and the Father had absolute, total, perfect, and eternal communion, and as an overflow of their love, they went on mission together. Period. The mission of the Son was an overflow of the love of the Father and the Son. It was a relational thing. Now the Son redeems some of us, brings them in, brings us into His family, brings us into communion with Him, brings us into communion with one another, and out of the overflow of our communion, out of the overflow of love and relationship, we too go on mission with Jesus to seek the lost, to seek straying sheep, and to say, come into the fold, come into the fold, know your God and know His people. Beloved, I'm telling you, with humility but with boldness, that this pattern of worship and communion and mission is deeply, deeply, deeply in the heart of God and in the history of the church. And I do pray that as we go forward, it will come to characterize us as a people. But first, we must learn to pray. We must. I know that many of you have vibrant prayer lives. And I say that uh, with all honesty because I have been the recipient of much of your prayer. And I could tell so many stories. I know that many of you pray. I'm talking about us learning to pray together. We don't do that much, and we need to learn what that's about. And so the reason we want to lead the church to fast and pray in the 40 days of Lent is somewhat because we do want to join in with the, church, the, 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 the broader church in the world, but mostly it has to do with wanting to begin to develop an atmosphere of prayer in this church. We're using a sort of a special set-apart season to teach us some lessons that hopefully will last us for a very, very, very long time. Another way to put this is we want to begin the, the march outward in mission by first going upward in prayer together. It's very simple, but to me it's extremely, extremely important. And if we get this right, we will bear much fruit from the Holy Spirit. I do believe that as we walk together and learn to pray together, I'll say more next week about what that might look like and, and how that might go, but I, I just want to say for now, I do believe that as we learn to pray together, that the day will come when the Holy Spirit will grant us His power. 
And I do believe that this church will begin to bear fruit that we can't even imagine right now. I don't know what that means in terms of numbers. I've told you many times that's not what's important to me. All I care about is that we bear the genuine fruit of the Holy Spirit that's born of communion with Him. And so I want to ask you now to to please over this week just read through Acts. Just skim it over like we've done this morning. Please look and see if you see there what I've been trying to show us there. Please pray for the movement of the Lord in the life of this church. And please pray with me right now. And and then when I'm done praying, I just want to rise and sing Spirit of the Living God in a prayerful way. I want to just begin together with you to invite the Spirit of God to come upon us as a people. So let's pray. Lord, the sermon is over now. And my weak offering is in your hands alone. The seed has been planted and... All the work is now Yours. It's always been Yours, Father, but in these moments You've used me. But now by the Holy Spirit, I pray that You would cause anything that was truly from You to plant deeply in our hearts and to begin to bear a fruit, to sprout and to grow and eventually bear fruit to the glory of Your name. In other words, Father, what I'm asking is that You would come among us and do a work among us that's genuinely from You. As elders, we have thoughts and intentions and plans and hopes, but Father, this is Your church. And we simply want to lift ourselves up as an offering to You and say, please, Father, do with us as You will. So, Spirit of the living God, as we speak these words to You, we mean them in our hearts. Please come now and fall afresh on us. Lead us in the way that we should go for Your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.